Fuck pain, fuck heartbreak. I'm still in love with life. From the multicultural headquarters of the future capital of the free-thinking states of America known as Los Angeles, this is the Drunken Dows Podcast. Tonight, it's interview time again, as we are joined by endocannabinoid researcher Greg Gerdemann as he shares with this amazing progress of research on THC and CDBs inside the amazing cannabis plant, and how his research is being hamstrung by policies dating back to the 70s that place cannabis as a Schedule One drug with no medicinal benefits, while alcohol remains perfectly legal. The research shows the complete opposite. This is going to make you mad. And now, asking you all to spread the words that corporations are not persons, I'm Rich Evers. And my partner in crime, the savage philosopher and middle figure of the gods, Daniele Bolelli. As we invite you to lower the lights, batten down the hatches, and prepare to open your mind for the Drunken Dows podcast begins now. Welcome back, everybody. Episode 93 of the Drunken Dows podcast. Another great interview today. Uh, it's a long one, and we're going to get straight to it. Bilelli's back next week as we get a regular episode of He and I together. Uh, so we're definitely looking forward to that. But very quickly, a special thanks to our friends at Datsusera Bags, our first sponsor. Amazing hemp gear, backpacks, geese, all sorts of incredible things. Check them out at dsgear.com. We love the hemp fiber, uh, especially with this episode. <laughs> um, our friends at Onnit. Oh, and NIT, Superfoods, Buffalo Jerkies, that amazing workout mace, and a thousand other awesome products that are made for human optimization. Check out their website. You're certainly to find something to pique your curiosity and order some stuff and be sure to tell them your friends at the Drunken Tao has sent you. And of course, our pals over in Thailand at Sure Design T-shirts, making awesome soft T-shirts and our amazing collection of uh, shirts. There'll probably be a new one coming out uh, not too far away because it's going to be year five, if you can believe that. And of course, our friends at Kiva.org. $25 can help a stranger out and make their life better in a million different ways. Check out the site, see uh, some story that kind of tugs at your heart, and send them a little money. And when the $25 gets returned, it goes right back into your pocket. So that's a quick intro. we got to get things going because this is a pretty long interview, and it does get a bit sciencey, but, you know, it's amazing, fascinating what's available to us now that's being completely uh, denied to the people. So it should make you pretty upset. It definitely uh, got me a little bit pissed about the whole situation. And a quick apology. This is a Skype interview. Uh, for the most part, it's pretty good. But it does have some dropouts here and there. And uh, that's just how it is. That's the only way we could get hooked up with Greg. And, uh, well, you'll hear it for yourself in just a second because here it comes. Today with us, Greg Gerdeman, or something close to it. Well, you guys know that I can't pronounce a damn word in English or any related language anyway, so, you know, sorry, Greg, for screwing up your name. Um, 
I was thinking maybe it makes more sense rather than uh, me trying to sum up all the stuff that you do and who you are. Maybe if you want to give our listener a little bit of background about yourself. I notice sometimes when I'm a guest on podcasts, people, they're always, they sum up who you are and I'm always like, yeah, that's not really it. Or no, that's not really. So I'm like, "Ah, might as well. I'll shut up and I'll let you do it. So if you want to tell our listener what you're about, what's your work about, the whole story please go i I sometimes go a little bit long when i'm talking about (laughs) such things but it's a pleasure to to be um talking to you um daniele i um this is my first like real podcast i'm I'm excited about it you have a real podcast (laughs) nice that's right it's my it's a real podcast i'm in the in the potosphere now (laughs) i am calling from sunny st petersburg florida where I am um, an assistant professor of biology at Eckerd College in St. Pete. Um, and I am a guy who studies cannabis and the endocannabinoid system. I um, fancy myself a endocannabinoid researcher, which I can you know, talk about, flesh out. But um, we, you and I started talking a little bit um, around some issues about cannabis as medicine, medical marijuana, and it's a tide, a, a surging sea change of public opinion and policy in the country, and that's something that I'm I'm really uh, aware of and involved in, and and um, think about a lot. Uh, I'm actually had I have so I my background is scientific. Um, I got a PhD in pharmacology um, from Vanderbilt University in 2001, and that was a study looking at how um, how cannabis works in the brain, how the, the system uh, of cannabinoid receptors, as we call them, controls the release of neurotransmitters in the brain. So I've been studying this for a long time, I and mean, for 20 years I've had the sort of uh, opportunity of when, when you have that first momentary conversation with someone for the first time and they ask what you do, it always ends up into a conversation about cannabis um, or neuroscience, and and both of those things are endlessly fascinating to me. So well, I have I think, had the good uh, fortune. I think right there, when you go into the, um, you know, you talk about cannabis, everybody on earth know what you're talking about. Glaucoma and anxiety. <laughs> When you talk about uh, the uh, endocannabinoid system, that's a whole different story. Uh, Most people are maybe not familiar with what you're talking about. So if you can give maybe a layman quick brief uh, sum up so that people can catch up with us and uh, be part of the conversation in regard to what you do as research, what's going on with this system? For sure. And, you know, when I started uh, grad school in 95, I wouldn't have known what cannabis was uh, nowadays, especially someplace like California. Um, if you if you talk to somebody about cannabis or marijuana, they know that you're talking about the same thing mm-hmm. uh, because the level of and and really everywhere the word cannabis is now recognized, even yep. though that's been the scientific nomenclature since the time of Linnaeus. Um, it, it wasn't in the public discourse, and now, and our public discourse has matured, um, not nearly as mature as it should be. But so, cannabis is the name of the of the plant, mm-hmm. and um, 
in the uh, in the early 60s, 1964 or so, um, when the the active compound of cannabis, the so-called psychoactive active compound THC, was discovered uh, and and identified structurally, it became called a cannabinoid. So cannabinoid is a term that refers to these family of molecules, several dozen of them that are found in the cannabis plant and really nowhere else um, uh, in the, in the, on the planet. And um, come, that's been studied for some 60 years. How does cannabis work uh, in the brain, in the body? Um, and much of the focus is on the brain because it was motivated by understanding, trying, it was motivated from a drug abuse paradigm. Mm -hmm. Cannabis makes you crazy and it makes you addicted. And um, for the better part of half a century, the only research, federal research dollars that went to studying cannabis was not at all related to how it could make you well, but how it was a danger in, uh, to your mind and your sanity and, uh, and, and could cause cancer. Right. Whereas we now, in a growing tour de force of research, are, are looking into how it could prevent or or um, cure cancers. Mm -hmm. So, the, but there's cannabinoids, active components from the plant, THC and cannabidiol, CBD, are now the two most talked about, and are, they are the most prominent. But in the, starting in the very late 80s, early 90s, um, some very key discoveries were made. Um, but it, of what we call the endocannabinoid system, meaning it was discovered how THC acts on cells in the brain. It binds to certain cell surface receptors, all of your neurons, your cells in your brain. Um, it's all it's all, all drugs work and hormones and neurotransmitters. They bind to these little receptor molecules on the cell surface. Mm -hmm. um, Are they exclusive though? I mean, is it like a key into one lock that that exact... Uh, receptor is for that exact chemical, or can they take different ones? I mean, I always it hear depends. my DNA needs THC, man, because yeah. of the, the whole receptor idea. But it so so various chemicals could make their way in through the same receptor. Well, it depends. I mean, it, it, this is how all pharmacology works. And when it, when you have like a different synthetic drugs or natural products, sometimes they are extremely selective for specific receptors, and then. The analogy, the metaphor of a, the drug being a key that fits into a lock, um, is a pretty classic textbook description. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's not a perfect description because molecules on your cells are not are not solid little metal keys. Um, there are things that move and wiggle and flex around, and so you know, THC can bind to the uh, cannabinoid receptor, the so-called CB1 receptor on the brain uh, brain cells. But some other molecules can too, um, including molecules that were discovered isolated from brain tissue in the around 1994 um, that act as endogenous natural activators of the receptor. So the receptor in some ways is promiscuous in that it will be activated by THC. It is activated normally by these molecules that we now call endogenous cannabinoids or endocannabinoids. Mm -hmm. And it's a whole system of regulating cellular function throughout the body. So there are there are drugs that have been uh, synthetically created by molecular chemists that are, are more highly selective for, say, a cannabinoid receptor. Um, THC actually can activate a, a number of different 
receptor pathways. And the receptor, in turn, gets activated by a molecule called anandamide, the first endocannabinoid, the first THC-like molecule that was discovered, um, and another one called 2-AG, which is a little bit more of a sterile chemical sounding name, 2-arachidonylglycerol. 2-AG and anandamide, these are the two major endocannabinoids, our body's THC-like molecules. Um, and, and the name anandamide is a nice story that people that are aware of the field will be well aware of, but it comes from the Sanskrit ananda, meaning an internal bliss, and the chemical structure is an amide, referring to its uh, a nitrogen-containing chemical group. So it's sort of a bliss amide molecule. Um, I love that that worked its way into that discovery. So we, we have in our bodies, all, um, all vertebrate animals have in our bodies these molecules that we have evolved as regulators of neural function and other tissue functions throughout the body. And the plant, the cannabis plant evolved a, a rather different set of molecules that folds up in a way that it, it mimics these endocannabinoids and it communicates with us in that way and influences our bodies in that way. So when, when one talks about the endocannabinoid system, we're talking about the receptors that were discovered in a quest to understand how THC works. Mm -hmm. And there, there are two real primary ones. They're not the only ones, but the CB1 receptor is primarily located in the nervous system in the brain and also peripheral nerves. But it, that's, it's also pops up in interesting places like the gut and in tumor cells and in pigment cells, melanocytes of the skin. Um, and the CB2 receptor, it was originally called the immune cell receptor because it is present in the immune system. Virtually every circulating white blood cell, cells of the circulating immune system, can express CB2 receptors. And so the immune system is just as heavily regulated by these by this endocannabinoid system um, or endocannabinoid mechanism as the brain is. Which I guess is where marijuana's uh, medicine comes in. You know, the whole discussion of uh, how some of these chemicals within the plant can affect the body uh, with healing results. So kind of shifting the paradigm away from the how marijuana will fuck you up, which by now, you know, there's plenty of evidence that uh, all the sort of scare tactics of the early days were largely made up versus now the how can this be a medicine? How does this work? You know, it's not even a does it work? Because, of course, there's a ton of anecdotal evidence. There's a ton of uh, beginning scientific studies done. But now, like, getting more into the scientific studies of how does it really work? In which way? What's the difference between uh, the way THC-heavy strains versus CBD-heavy strains? How do they affect the body? And I think that's where I would love you to take us next is... Because, uh, again, you know, we are... Most people have a passing knowledge, and I'm definitely assuming that most of our listeners have a passing knowledge of what we're talking about, but clearly probably two are super deep into the real science of it all. So if mm -hmm. you can give us a informed layman version about the 
differences between what you have seen in the way THC operates and in medical ways in which CBD heavy strains operate in medical ways kind of give us the what's the status right now you know in the eyes of uh, in your eyes as a scientist where are we at with the understanding of uh, marijuana as medicine well you know we are are in various different places mm-hmm. because of how scattered and patchwork the the nation is just to look just to keep it of the United States you sure. know but you you're quite right i mean from just a scientific perspective going to international scientific meetings where people study the biology of can, of of cannabinoids mm-hmm. and and talking to people in big pharma that are have research dedicated to this i mean the the paradigm shifted these 30 years ago you know mm-hmm. that papers stopped scientific papers in the 1980s uh, you know, you didn't have a paper about about THC that didn't start with some paragraph about its dangerous uh, nature, right? And and would end with some disclaimer about how you know dangerous it is. Um, and you know, in California, you guys are in 2016. It, in Florida, we're kind of in 1986. <laughs> it's, I mean, I I can. You cannot take for granted that, especially someone who's a lawmaker in Tallahassee, uh, that they know anything about this. Right. But even physicians too. A whole lot of physicians, two generations or three generations of physicians, um, have been trained in this notion that there's nothing medical about marijuana, that it is a drug of abuse, and that's the only way you file it. You file it away, and so. Uh, you know the basics of the dialogue are not there, and so there's a lot to talk about. Um, you you mentioned a sort of a paradigm shift, and really part of the the challenge, part of why cannabis policy um, has di- been dynamic and been controversial and been hard for some people to embrace, is because it's a paradigm flip. I mean, it, it flips the paradigm on its head. Uh, the public policy, the prohibition public policy and our how we teach our kids, how I was raised to learn about about marijuana is really got its modern roots in the Controlled Substance Act of 1970. And you, you certainly can go back to the Marijuana Tax Act in the late 30s and the, the sort of xenophobic, racist roots of prohibition there. But the Controlled Substance Act is the basis of the DEA's authority. It's the basis of our public policy now, and it classifies cannabis in the Schedule One, the most strictest category, which is a medical criteria. Really, it makes a biomedical argument to be in status of Schedule One. The Controlled Substance Act says that marijuana has no accepted medical value and that it cannot be used safely under the supervision of a physician. And those are two uh, – and also that there's a high risk for abuse. And at least two of those – well, really all three of them have have no grounding in scientific or medical observation, and they really never have. So that paradigm has been deeply, deeply flawed, and yet we grew up in it. Physicians have been trained in it. Law enforcement has made have made the decisions of their lives and their career based on it, the judgments that have been made. And it's so completely flipped from 
the reality that we're now understanding, a lot of which we didn't know then. I mean, cannabis has been used as medicine for thousands of years. It, you could make the legitimate archaeological argument that it is the earliest medicinal plant, or at least among them. Um, and that's a, just a fascinating set of you know, ways to study. Um, but still, it's just this modern research with the endocannabinoid system, um, tweaking and looking very closely at what these molecules do, what the system does to protect the brain. The endocannabinoid system, among other things, is a way in which the networks, the circuits, the cells at the cellular level of the brain protect themselves mm -hmm. from too much excite excitation, rein in over excitation. Um, and in, in looking at those with the fine molecular and genetic twe tweezers we have as scientists these days, I mean, the therapeutic potential for cannabis that really, to our knowledge, was never understood before, we've been breaking lots of new ground about it. It's a paradigm flip, and and advocates get so excited about it for lots of reasons. Maybe it has given their child's life back to them. Maybe they're just, you know, I, I can get super excited just on the scientific literature of it. And you and you start talking to someone who's totally naive about marijuana being legit medicine and you throw out this list of 20 different things that it could be useful for and they're like dude slow down you don't you're just being hyperbolic um you don't know shit about this but it's it's not hyperbolic actually there's tremendous scientific validity for many different uses of cannabis not just i mean the easiest one probably to talk uh, spastic disorders like epilepsy, seizure mm -hmm. disorders, because right. of what I just mentioned, that cells and circuits in the brain release these endocannabinoids as a way to tone down their excitation, to protect themselves from too much excitability. Because the electrical language of the brain that is so amazing and allows neural circuits to work also is, is dangerous to them if they get too active. And it's called excitotoxicity. That's what happens. It goes on with stroke. It goes on with uh, uncontrolled epileptic seizures. And endocannabinoids, THC in particular, um, well, no, THC isn't an endocannabinoid. It's a phytocannabinoid, a plant cannabinoid. But THC in particular replicates. It, it supports, it mimics the endocannabinoids in the way of block toning down that, that hyperexcitation. And that's therapeutic. But when we've studied the endocannabinoid system throughout, like in the immune system how it, or in the endocrine cells of the fat tissues um, or in the lining of the gut with CB2 receptors, um, we, there comes to be an understanding, oh, these endocannabinoids could be controlled, could be involved in regulating insulin release and sensitivity and therefore could be useful some tweaking of the endocannabinoid system could be useful for various metabolic disorders and diabetes um, peripheral pain that's related to diabetes and many other sources uh, be treated by uh, cannabinoids because the endocannabinoid system is normally controlling those things I don't know, give me back on track a little bit. About <laughs> I guess I'm wandering from the... one of the things that's interesting right now is that you brought up is the fact that there's such a difference between, uh, like right now, there are states 
that have acknowledged that marijuana has a medical value and never been, and so they've been legalized for medical reasons. Never mind the places where it has also been legalized for recreational purposes, but you know, just sticking to the medicine argument. Whereas the federal law still goes back to the 1930s, where according to the federal law, marijuana is still Schedule One. Uh, not just even marijuana, cannabis as a whole. I mean, even strains that have zero THC that are purely industrial cannabis are considered related to and as such, you know, the whole thing is outlawed. Right. And the idea being everything about the plant is bad, there is no medical value. So there's an obvious clash between the science as it's recognized at the federal level currently and the science mm-hmm. as it's recognized at the state level and let alone the places where the research is actually being done, which is further away where the, where the state is at. So there's this kind of weird dichotomy because on one end we discuss on a growing level marijuana as medicine, and on another level still the federal law is stuck a century ago pretty much. And so there's that it's clash between the two. It's incongruent. Yeah. I mean, the federal law doesn't line up with scientific observation, the evidence base at all. What um, what does it take to change it in that regard? Because obviously, I mean, the by now, whereas in the past, politicians usually, you know, no politician is going to go out there to support something that has not enough public support. So it's like, yeah, great, I'm going to legalize marijuana and get a few hippie votes and I'm going to lose a ton of conservative votes. Screw that. I'm not doing that. But by now, the support for marijuana legalization is at such a level that is not a minority position anymore. There really is not that much of a danger for a politician's career to endorse it and support it. And yet it seems that that discussion at a federal level is still lagging behind. I understand this is more politics than science in that regard, but what's your read on that and what do, where do you think is going? Gosh, well, I mean, I think I mean, things are changing. They, they have to. I mean, there's going to be, before long, a majority of states in the United States of America that have some legal some recognition of the legal uh, the the legitimate medical status of cannabis and now many of those states like currently Florida have uh, this sort of low t low THC cannabidiol only rules that are 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 quite problematic I mean we could talk about that um, in just a minute but. I mean, it's just so hard to believe that it's been maintained as long as it has that it makes you a little like cautious about prognosticating about where it could change. But and you talk about federal level not doing anything. I mean, uh, you know, this past few months, I don't know, remember the details, but Senator Bernie Sanders uh, has introduced a bill to um, basically remove marijuana from. The scheduling, which I think is actually the appropriate way to do it, and allow states more control to do what they're doing in this sort of uh, um, patchwork experiment of um, of of state um, rights that's been going on. He can't even get a single sponsor, so, not yeah. among any Democrats, not among any. Um, what do you think of that? Yeah, what do you think is going on there? I'm not enough of a policy woman. To really know, honestly, I mean, I, I've gotten more involved with politics these last couple of years than I ever really wanted to. Um, mm-hmm. But I, it, it's beyond me that he doesn't have more sponsors. Yeah. Um, I don't quite get that. What on one level, the pragmatic sense of what would it take to change? Um, the the my understanding is that the president 
could, by executive order, instruct, uh, I guess, Health and Human Services, FDA, um, I forget, to, to remove cannabis out of Schedule 1, to move it yeah. at least to Schedule 2, mm-hmm. which is still, I think, quite inappropriate to the fact that, you know, it, cannabis, yeah, it, it can get you high, and high THC cannabis is, can get you high and not everyone likes that and it is definitely a side effect um sometimes it's the effect people are looking for but as a medicine it is a it is a limiting factor to people who don't want to experience that but the safety profile of of even just straight up smoked herbal cannabis is just dramatically better than most or if not all prescription medicines no, that's I mean, the thing that, that's, that's not overstated. It's an incredibly safe medicine. Even these places, I mean, in California, I've got a colleague um, in in Southern California who sees a lot of patients, and um, the director of a Bonnie Goldstein. She's the director of a Canna Centers um, clinic set up in in California, and she we, she and I were talking recently about about this um, up at the Emerald Cup in um, Santa Rosa, and. You know, she was talking about some of the instances where, you know, uh, patients have, quote unquote, overdosed, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, an overdose on cannabis is not impossible, especially with these high potency concentrates. Right. Rather, sort of high, highly concentrated extracts. Yeah. But but (laughs) we've we've grown up with a non notion of overdose being equivalent to a fatality right and and that's the thing that every it more and more and more everybody realizes that you can't do that with cannabis it can't kill you and you know you can fall over I, and hit your head on a rock i've seen a fella do that before yeah, sure. that's well, about it right <laughs> yeah well it can it could contribute to accidents uh and if you have a high-speed vehicle and a death wish then it could you know i guess contribute but you know you see what i mean as a as a medical argument. Um, and, and this is just something that everybody realizes now. Whereas acetaminophen, Tylenol, is, people pop that all the time. Doctors recommend it all the time. I'm not going to knock it as bad medicine, but it's probably the biggest single cause of liver toxicity in this country. Wow. wow. You, yeah. In any single bottle of over-the-counter Tylenol, you you could sentence yourself to a slow, painful death of liver failure if you if you threw down that whole bottle or half of it. Um, we deal with toxic medicines all the time, and um, cannabis is so much less so. It's remarkable, and I yet guess. the science that makes the biggest splash, the science that in my and it's in my realm of neuroscience, mm-hmm. um, that make always makes the biggest splash on the AP wire and in the local news and you get government luminaries citing it when they're worried about reforming cannabis policy it's the neuroscience of addiction and insanity you know that that uh, well we for example to cite uh, you know one or two studies that have been extraordinarily hyped these last couple of years one is a study that was out of Duke University, but was looking at a population of a long-term research project in the need in New Zealand, and they they looked at data um, the, of this big long-term project and concluded that that people who started using cannabis not only recreationally but in very high doses daily before the age of 15 
and proceeded to use it on such a high level for years and years and years, they reported like an eight point drop in IQ that was sustained, you know, through adulthood. Mm -hmm. And this has been hyped so, so much. Um, I feel certain alcohol could do the same sort of damage quite easily. Oh, there's, I mean, and it's, it's objectively true. Alcohol can cause so much damage to your brain and does to so many people. Um, but you know, and, and that's the thing. Why do we? So many people fall back on that. I mean, alcohol is definitively more dangerous than cannabis. Whether you're talking about risk of accidents, or direct consequence neurologically, or the fact that a, an alcohol, someone addicted, a daily addict, a, alcoholic, can actually die from withdrawal, whereas someone who's a very long-term cannabis smoker can stop and is most likely just going to suffer uh, irritability, insomnia, you know, crankiness, the kind of thing that you have when you when you quit a long-term coffee habit and it goes away. Uh, alcohol is so much definitively more dangerous than cannabis um, and, al- and prohibition is more dangerous than alcohol and we know this. So how much more dangerous is prohibition than a mature approach to uh, adult use of cannabis. Um, and that's where the, the political question comes in, where it was weird, because, you know, as we said, you know, there are always going to be the freaks. You know, I think he was, uh, if I'm not mistaken, was Chris Christie, who's, uh, you know, I was a president. Is he still Only while the, he can. Is he still in the run while for president? Yeah, he was in the run for the presidential, um, for the Republican primaries, he was like, if I become a chief executive, I'm going to enforce federal law on the states. Basically, I'm going to shut down the whole state medical programs, all of that stuff. So you have that extreme. Yeah. And that part doesn't surprise me because, you know, you're always going to have guys who are just way, just batshit crazy. We're going to say things that are in direct contradiction with all of the evidence. I get that part. You know, I don't I don't even mind it that much. Well, I mind it if they actually gain power, but, you know, until then is some crazy guy just spouting stuff off. The part that I find disturbing is what you brought up, is the fact that when you do have uh, a possible bill to alter this, it's not that you don't have the support of the crazy guys like Chris Christie, is you don't have the support of anybody. I mean, even of people who have really nothing to lose by supporting it, because if you look at more progressive politicians pretty much their entire constituency would be in favor. You know, there would be no real setback. There would be no... Because, I mean, I'm a realist about it. I understand that 30 years ago, if you propose uh, rescheduling or getting marijuana completely out of the schedule, you would have just sunk your political career. I get it. You know, so even though maybe privately you believe, sure, we could do that, as a politician, you don't do it. But that's not the case anymore. So I don't... And I mean, right now, people accuse... Bernie Sanders of doing it to appeal to the popular vote, like it's a tactic. Right, except <laughs> that no one else does. It's like everybody it. else could do that. It wouldn't be really that difficult. Well, how common are these? You see these amazing stories where some family has to travel 800 miles to get their daughter, you know, one treatment of some great CBD. I don't know how you would give it to a child. It's just like Marinol Down sort of thing. Um but however, you get like these epilepsy kids where they're locked in position until they get this medicine and they they turn into regular kids. I mean, 
that's not just infrequent, is it? Are you seeing that all the time? Is that something we need to get pictures and video of how much better these kids could be if only they had the opportunity and put it in these people's faces so that they know how amazing these treatments are? Or is that just sort of the whole other spectrum and that's not, they're not that effective? Or is it that effective? What have you seen? Well, in some cases it is. And I, and I mean, I should, if people just picking this up or whatever, I should clarify. I'm not a clinician, um, and uh, but I, I study this field um, very actively. And it, so, yes, people should be looking at those videos. Um, in states where there's obstinance, uh, recalcitrance to accepting even low THC cannabis as medicine, they absolutely should look at those videos. We're learning more and more. I mean, this CBD phenomenon uh, is amazing. Um, it, not 15 years ago, people from cannabis breeders to other, you know, sort of institutional academic scientists thought that the cannabidiol molecule CBD was was such a minority compound that it had been basically sort of bred out of the plant by the black market clandestine cannabis industry that has selectively bred for ITHC for so many right. years. Um, and, and there's just wonderful stories about how high CBD or CBD-rich strains were rediscovered. And uh, it gives me a moment, a thought to sort of direct people to um, my friends at projectcbd.org, a wonderful organization, Project CBD, um, founded by Martin Lee and Fred Gardner, um, two guys. As I've known for many years because Fred was going to uh, International Cannabinoid Research Society meetings um, when I started back in the late 90s. And he's been a stalwart um, sort of journalist. Both of CBD was, some, was a forerunner to understanding that CBD as a non-psychoactive, or at least it's not psychoactive like THC is, but it's very medicinal, uh, was – it's going to be a game changer in people's perceptions, um, and it has been. And I urge people to look at projectcbd.org and their wonderful list, well-curated list of therapeutic uses of cannabis. Um, but that, you know, so that said, how did uh, getting to your question of like the miracle drug phenomenon and what's really changed things is work the 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 highly publicized clinical experiments with high CBD cannabis. Um, that, of course, became wildly popularized with the CNN special by Dr. Sanjay Gupta, um, who profiled the case of Charlotte Fiji in, in Colorado. And um, Charlotte, as a, a, I mean, she is a patient who is the, has the kind of juvenile intractable epilepsy that responds extraordinarily well in many cases to the cannabidiol molecule. We're coming to understand that there are some cases of epilepsy, especially these very difficult, traditionally difficult to treat, intractable epilepsy um, syndromes that respond very well to cannabinoids, um, including CBD. Um, Dervais syndrome, I believe, is what Charlotte Fiji had. Um, and there are some others that when I say intractable, it means the common the, – the existing anti-epileptic drugs fail fairly miserably with these young children who have just catastrophic seizure disorders, it, dozens or even hundreds of seizures a day, which is just hard to even imagine. It's basically a 
child seizing um, at a near constant rate. And, and of course, this has terrible infl- effect on the neurological development uh, of a child. And uh, in short, children with these, uh, with the Dervais syndrome, for example, um, respond really well to CBD-rich cannabis. Um, and, and I have heard from a number of patients that having some THC present is important. Um, but those results are so dramatic because the symptomology of a, of a seizure is so dramatic and it's so visible. Um, and, and sometimes, yeah, uh, there, are, there are dozens and dozens of, of um, patients who have seen dramatic improvements, dramatic, immediate, I'm going to have a life now. Uh, responses to working with extracts of the cannabis plant and that's shifted things and that's why people leave parents leave states and become medical refugees to go to Colorado Um, although shortages there have been problematic um, it's not we just it, it can be frustrating here in Florida we're one of the states that the legislature upon pressure from parents groups and uh, following the wave of popular eye-opening that that came from Dr. Gupta's special, they passed a law uh, with a you know compassionate use handle to allow low THC cannabis. They got around the scheduling act by politically legally redefining low THC cannabis as some different plant. And it's not cannabis anymore if it has less than 0.8% THC. Um, which, which becomes kind of absurd for different reasons, being a scientist. But we, so the legislature in Florida passed a low THC cannabis law, but it's, um, it, it's been mired down um, it, with uh, um, a program that has never really been designed to be implemented well for patient access. They've been more concerned with what businesses benefit, who's going to get into the game of growing it. And I won't go into all those details right now, but... Um, it's been really unfortunate. Whereas also in 2014, we had a Florida had a state uh, an amendment, the ballot proposition that got onto the to the ballot in 2014, into to, to um, uh, allow cannabis as medicine, a medical marijuana amendment. In Florida, that ballot proposition, there's no vehicle for it except to amend the constitution, and that um, medical marijuana. Um, amendment received 58% of the popular vote in a conservative-leaning state with a conservative-leaning turnout. But in Florida, you have to have 60% supermajority to get a ballot, uh, an an amendment passed to the state constitution. Um, And so in this state, uh, it is resoundingly clear on the ballot box, in polls that that regularly, objective academic polls regularly show upwards of 85% um, of Floridians support the use of cannabis as medicine uh, with doctor supervision. And and most politicians in Tallahassee, by my estimation, feel no pressure to do anything about it. So what happened with the 58? I mean, if 85% seemed to be the popular opinion, why, when it came to the polls, it turned out to be 58? That was the legislators. For, for one thing, it was it was just a rocket. The, the, the voter turnout 
is so pathetic. It just mm. makes you want to hang your head in shame when you see pictures of all over the world of people lining up to exercise democracy, and we have like an eleven percent voter turnout. Eleven percent. I'm sorry. Try that again. You have eleven. That's not that I, I don't have a. It was very low. The okay. voter turnout was abysmal. It, wow. It's just so pathetic. But um, also, it, it just became such a horse and pony show. Um, mm -hmm. The state, uh, the opposition to it, was led by this uh, Las Vegas casino magnate Sheldon Adelson, who puts no. a lot of into concern. He pumped millions of dollars in the last minute to on attack ads and. Um, and, and the things they did, I mean, they're just so over-the-top wrong talk. Reefer about, Madness craziness. Just, it was so – it was Reefer Madness. It was racist. It was it was like images of young black men in hoodies like going to be – oh, yeah, these are caretakers. They might play jazz. Watch patients, out. Oh, patients were stigmatized. Uh, caregivers were stigmatized as drug dealers. Physicians who would do it were stigmatized as a name. Enabling bad behavior. There were ads with, you know, like a insinuating that medical cannabis would be used as a date rape drug. Um, it it was really insane. And and also, I mean, I think some of the the strategizing on behalf of the group that was pushing it made it a little bit too much about um, the the people who were pushing the amendment. They they didn't they didn't do enough of what you just said, Rich, putting. Uh, the faces of patients up front and center, um, and it became sort of a Democrat versus Republican thing. And and I'm convinced that the real clincher was that it was a state, it was an amendment to the Constitution, and people, groups like the Tampa Bay Times, a major newspaper here um, in St. Pete, they editorialized, and I know from people on the inside that this was a heated decision. But they just they put out an editorial saying this is the right thing for public policy to move towards, but it should not be chiseled into the stone of the state constitution. The legislature needs to hear this call to action and do something by statute. And they failed in such royal uh, – I mean they didn't. But that kept people from voting because they thought, you know, there's going to – pressure it should be done in the legislature not at the ballot box wow um, well okay so florida politics craziness national politics lots of craziness because again the it's fact crazy. that with there is no despite overwhelming scientific support there's you know a couple of guys you know the bernie sanders of the world who are pushing it with no support even from progressive politicians that's pretty weird but you know let's leave the mystery of politics aside Let's go yeah. back, I guess, to the medical science of it all. Yeah. For about the three people among our listeners who don't know what we're talking about when we say CBD, THC, of course, CBD strains, just to oversimplify, do have medical values such as the ones he was mentioning for kids with seizures and a bunch of other stuff, but do not get you high. Mm -hmm. So they really don't qualify as a drug per se under every level. Whereas the THC one, the THC heavy strains are the ones that have the effect that most people who smoke it recreationally are seeking for. It's yeah. the heavy high that you get from the THC. It's funny, there were bales and bales of low THC cannabis available in Nashville in the late 80s. I yeah, because nobody walks. Of course, nobody's everywhere. looking for it. Yeah, <laughs> of course. Weed coming from Mexico. Yeah, yeah Mexicali dirt weed. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, so to give us a quick simple breakdown for people what are the main things that are being used for like 
in what fields of like what diseases what problems are treated with cbd heavy strains versus thc heavy strains differences between the two in terms of what they seem to be effective at combinations of you know kind of give us the breakdown of marijuana as medicine what is it used for and of course because there's no such thing as marijuana as we said there are a bunch of different chemicals within it cbd and thc being the, some of the main ones but by no means the only ones you know what's the difference yes. between the various types of cannabis and what kind of effect do they have uh, as medicine yeah well um you know part of the punchline to it to this story. I mean, I think it's very important to list some things, and I will. Um, but part of the punchline is that people it, wanting to, even wanting to embrace normalization of this as medicine and physicians wanting to learn more, they want to be armed with saying, hey, somebody's just come into my office with multiple sclerosis and they're starting to have pain and spasticity. What's the strain I should get for them? Mm-hmm. And part of the challenge of, I mean, cannabis is a more holistic medicine and herbalistic approach um, and and the fact that our endocannabinoid system um, it set is is different from person to person in a sense um, there it may not be so easy to say this strain is a strain that works for you for mm-hmm. multiple sclerosis might another strain might work better for a different patient with the same indication mm-hmm. so I think increasingly people who are savvy or are on the, the forefronts of this are saying this is a medicine uh, that really needs to be taken as you're treating the person with the disease and not the disease. You know, you can't just say that someone with neuropathic pain will respond to a four to one CBD to THC ratio and this kind of um, OG Kush works for that. You know. And, and I just cited a strain name, so people in California would be like, "Yeah, no one's talking about." So, what's but, the like? How would somebody go about it? Like, would they would they have to test multiple strains to see which one yeah. seems to respond with your particular problem? Yes, uh, and, I mean, there's a lot of patient information out there. There's mm-hmm. there um, there's a, a much growing, sophisticated dialogue of people who have tried. There are a lot of good caregivers in um, in in California, especially many of whom have websites and and discuss these kinds of things at length but as a real general overview and i'm not a clinician though i you know i have many conversations advising people um i think that the way cannabis as medicine is succeeding well where where it is mm-hmm. um a patient would would naturally try unless it's someone who's well experienced with cannabis and knows that they get along just fine with the THC high, that individual may start off with pretty um, strong doses of THC. But for for many people who are not interested in the cannabis high or afraid of it or they've tried it, they know they don't like it, but they're interested in looking at this therapeutically, the, the ability, which is not a I mean, the ability to get CBD rich strains or extracts that are heavier on are predominantly CBD and low THC is certainly a good way to start. Now, not everyone has that selection. I mean, from state to state. Sure, we really have a gift out here. I mean, especially some of the better collectives really do have it down to a science. I mean, they know what to to recommend to people. Well, And the high CBD. I always want to say CDB. We're not talking about the Charlie Daniels band here. It's a whole different thing. (laughs) But it seems like, I mean, there's even posters on the wall now where if you're 
more looking for something you don't want the high and you just want the pain relief or I don't, I'm not I don't know the pain relief isn't completely attached to the CBD is it is it a combination no no, no, no it's not I mean so I, I should get back to Daniele's question a little more deliberately I mean so we know THC is really good for things okay nausea that's what something that's FDA approved I mean dronabinol which is marinol is a pill that's approved for nausea related to chemotherapy. You know, the, the nausea you get when you're poisoning yourself with chemotherapy, um, it, THC can help and can help very quickly. Um, and, and and there are so many stories about that. Um, that. Lester Grinspoon comes to mind writing in the 70s and with marijuana reconsidered about how his child with cancer uh, smoked cannabis for the first time and instantly was had an appetite so nausea and appetite is something that having thc around is important for um controlling pain ct thc and cbd both have evidence at least in in preclinical animal studies in controlling pain and so you have certain kinds of pains like um chronic chronic pain um whether it's recovering from injury where you've got chronic inflammatory related pain or what we call neuropathic pain that can happen with, also with injury or with diabetes or with HIV where viral infection leads to nerve damage. And, and you have neuropathic pain, meaning your, your, pain, your nerve cells are sending you signals of pain when they really shouldn't be. Um, cannabinoids are good for that. And THC is, uh, you know, there's much better evidence for THC being helpful for that than CBD. Um, so those pain states where opiates are not as good. I mean, uh, opiates as medicine are very useful, um, especially for acute pain, but not so much for chronic maintained pain You're, with your you know, back surgeries and injuries and what have you. Um, then there's issues of um, seizures I mentioned, and CBD seems very effective for these juvenile uh, genetically determined um, severe epilepsies, other less so for epilepsies that come on um, later in life, but I think that um, there one should we should definitely be more openly pursuing you know looking at whole plant cannabis medicine to allow people to search for what might work for them. Um, uh, multiple sclerosis and other spastic disorders. Um, and neurodegenerative disorders like Lou Gehrig's disease, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, ALS. Um, cannabis has been, can be used very therapeutically effectively for that. Um, and when I say these things, well, there are so many catch-22s in cannabis research, but many of which are well known. And there's a mountain of preclinical animal research and, and observations that get lumped into what we call anecdotal evidence um, but sort of that gold standard clinical trial study is they're not very many maybe 10 11 studies it's there um, for example uh, dr. Don Abrams at University of UCSF San Francisco um, directed a number of really good gold standard placebo controlled double blind trials with um, with smoked cannabis this would be something that predominantly would have more THC than CBD, um, was effective in controlling uh, painful neuropathies and spasticities in an HIV population. 
a really again this is the gold standard trial that clinicians and the FDA say they want patients didn't know what they were getting you know and you can there are smoked cannabis preparations that you know don't have any THC in them and that was a placebo they didn't know what they were getting the the caregiver didn't know uh, the, what was being given um, and the data was all parsed out and when they were given active cannabis the pain was was very pronounced uh, they had great pain control uh, when they switched to placebo unbeknownst to them the pain they lost pain control um, and and vice versa so there have been really good studies with neuropathic pain there have been good suggestive studies with the control of spasticity and pain and multiple sclerosis um, some of this comes from the product Sativex, which is a, a extract marketed by GW Pharmaceuticals out of the UK. It's a basically a one-to-one THC to cannabidiol ratio that they create by mixing a couple of different strains, um, a couple of different extracts. Um, they, they've had pretty good success, but it, I think that in that work with Sativex and with what other people see with, with whole plant cannabis and, and different patient populations is that you get some patients who respond really well and this could be a great medicine for you and other patients not so much what about the um, the whole rick simpson uh, phoenix tear thing you know the whole rick simpson having become famous for claiming that his experience with thc very heavy strains Uh, is a cure for cancer that he was able to heal himself he was able to heal other people you know the claims are obviously sound fantastic because cancer is such a probably the big killer of the age right now and you know you have this guy saying super heavy thc strains have been shown to kill cancer to cure it you know his regimen is pretty intense because he requires people to take 60 grams of super thc heavy oil on a 90 day period which is kind of you know it, it's brutal you know one gram a day at one point when you graduate one gram a day one gram a day of thc is i don't know man it's like <laughs> that's some heavy well, stuff that, right there <laughs> but uh what's it's your a, it's a huge news. yeah it's a insane it's, heavy amount of thc that i'm even wondering how do you even build the tolerance to get to that because it's yeah. like well it's, slowly you build a tolerance slowly and these come in these are formulated in various oils with those kinds of concentrations is a very viscous oil mm-hmm. and same thing the way high cbd is delivered to kids and others it, it, i mean it, people are trying to use high dose cannabinoids whether it's cbd or thc it's typically going to be a thick viscous oil delivered by sort of a one milliliter syringe um that, that's that is placed under the tongue and a lot of it gets absorbed um, through the through the lining of the mouth, but it also gets swallowed and, and absorbed in that way through ingestion. Um, you know, certainly, how, actually how to approach this? I guess part of the way to say it is I have come around to very much believe that THC has anti-cancer properties and CBD has anti-cancer properties. Um, I was I, honestly, I mean, as a scientist, I I think I do a pretty uh, natural job of of really wanting to see evidence and mm-hmm. with some of those early um, claims with Rick Simpson oil and others I was skeptical um, for various reasons I mean partly because it, 
the messaging is with some of that, and I'm not going to, I'm not intending necessarily to point it directly at one group or another. Um, the messaging of it can be, this healed me and it will heal you. And it, it can cure every cancer. And we're, what he was talking about running for the cure. Cannabis is not a cure all for cancer. Cancer is not a single disease. Even one person's cancer in their body is probably three or four different kinds of cancers. That's the level of sort of sophistication that oncology has today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it's real. But uh, and, and also with that particular sort of Rick Simpson oil process, I was I was skeptical because a lot of what they were presenting on videos were not clinical evidence. They were pictures of someone with a lesion on their face and then a, you know, a before and after picture, which may not have ever been uh, a properly biopsied uh, tumor. Right. Um, and 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 I knew I knew oncologists and clinicians that were begging to get involved with studying these things, and there was so much. Some of the players involved with marketing that, um, and for probably understandable reasons, being a criminal activity. Uh, didn't get involved with that, um, and there and there, I know physicians. I know cancer physicians who have had um, patients come in. And this, I first learned of this some years ago. I'd be interested to get reacquainted with it. But I've I've heard direct clinical stories of patients with very treatable forms of skin cancer, for example, cancers that have a very good response rate, turning down conventional medicine with this notion of conventional medicine is just poison and I'm going to go with mama ganja mm-hmm. and get these high extracts and try it and they die. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean to color this. I mean, I don't mean to overstate this either, but those are cases of people whose lives ended out of the sense that these high cannabis, high THC cannabis extracts were a cure all. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a tragedy because I think people should work with physicians because, uh, because there's a lot of intelligence about how to address cancer. Now, that said, yeah, a lot of traditional hospital-based cancer therapy is a, a carpet bombing of your body. And moreover, I mean, here I'm, I'm playing the devil's advocate a little bit, but, you know, case studies keep popping up of people who really did have cancer and children who have gliomas uh, that either go way or are suspended or their survival was greatly increased and in cancer therapy if you know maintaining survival six months a year two years that's considered a cure or mm-hmm. at least the best that we have mm-hmm. and you know i know people who've kept their daughter alive uh with with cannabis i know i've met people and i've heard firsthand stories of people who had clinician diagnosed brain imaging diagnosed cancers, some of them intractable, sent home to die. And and they went with this, you know, stupefying level of THC, these high level extracts that you definitely have to slowly wean yourself up. And still it's going to be a very um, psychoactive, if not incapacitating dose. But when you're fighting for cancer, I mean, fighting off cancer. Yeah. Is that something you're going to do? Sure. Um, and it's saved lives and it's cured cancers. And the thing is there's lots of animal research to support it. There's piles and piles of animal research. And um, there's a there's a wonderful documentary. 
out um, on the, the sort of life and, and work of Professor Raphael Meshulam mm-hmm. uh, from Israel, who everyone in the field knows. I mean, we're all sort of disciples to Raphael Meshulam. He, he um, discovered the chemical structure of THC and cannabidiol 50 years ago. And in the 90s, he discovered anandamide. He's done a, a hundred different important studies in between and since. And there's a wonderful documentary. It's available. You can find it free online called The Scientist. And it will – somebody watching that for an hour will get much more educated about this than listening to me. Not not that your podcast isn't awesome, but it's a wonderful documentary. And I, it pops into my head because one of the things that Dr. Mishulam says near the end of that documentary, talking about cancer, he says, is, is cannabis a cure for cancer? Uh, no, or at least I don't know. I don't know if it is. Um, but if I were a mouse, I'm paraphrasing, Rafi, if I were a mouse, I could, you know, cannabis could cure any cancer I have. That's the kind of preclinical support we have. The kind of work that's been done in mice, breast cancer, lung cancer, brain cancer, many different types of tumors, the kind of work that has been done in, in animal models to support TC and CBD as anti-tumor fighting compounds is so much that if they were if they were proprietary compounds they would have been moved into human clinical trials years and years and years ago mm-hmm. and they're not there are still no active clinical trials in humans to let them try high dose organic sun-grown cannabis to fight their tumors why not people are doing it anyway study it Right. No, absolutely. So I guess the thing is, part of what makes this complicated is the fact that, as you say, there's such a clash between, on one end, you have the cases of the people who go and, you know, doctors have given up hope and they take certain strain in heavy doses and boom, they're healed. Then you get the other person who does the same thing and end up dying. And you're like, wait, what happened? You know, there's not a one-to-one equation here where, you know, you do this, you get this result. So I think that's where no, part of the confusion not. comes in is because, as you said, cancer is not one disease, it's multiple, and um, cannabis is not one plant, is a gazillion different variations depending on the strain. Yeah. So figuring out the right match between the strain and your particular body and your particular issue, that's where the art comes in, and it's kind of the Wild mm. West out there because it's not that there's exactly a super clear knowledge of uh, what needs to be done. I mean, maybe there are some amazing clinicians out there, but it seems like there's a lot of guesswork involved. There's more and more. I mean, we're living in an age of molecular medicine. And mm-hmm. I mean, for example, like with this epile- with kids with these catastrophic epilepsies, I mean, the mutation is recognized in some of these cases like Dravet syndrome. You could get a DNA test of your child before they're even born and realize um, that they're going to be – that their disorder will be uh, amenable to treatment with cannabis. I, I'm not sure that that – I mean I shouldn't have used that specific example because you don't typically know that that's coming at all. But, but, but with cancer, for example, paper – a research article just came out in, on the 16th of this month. I actually just pulled it up on my laptop. I'm looking mm-hmm. at it. In an a open access peer-reviewed journal called BMC Cancer, Biomed Central Cancer People can find this online about dronabinol, which is THC, synthetic THC, preferentially having anti-leukemic activity 
in lymphoblastic leukemia, and it's mostly a mouse study and in leukemia cell lines and culture. But they do tremendous mechanistic work. This is from an oncology unit in a hospital in Germany. Because um, they're, I mean, this is an international thing. Um, but they do, they do tremendous multifaceted uh, mechanistic work to show that THC has anti-proliferative effects. It has pro-apoptotic effects, which means it stimulates cancer cells to go into a suicide, a programmed cell death. And they even, in this, in this one paper that's mostly work with cell lines, they have data from observational data with patients who were given high THC and controlled their lymphoblastic leukemia as opposed to another kind of leukemia called myeloblast leukemia, where it's less effective. If we would unshackle the power of modern molecular genetic research mm-hmm. to really research this stuff, it, it could be yielding so much more progress towards improving the quality and longevity of life in uh, cancer patients. I mean, how it's just so astounding that uh, researchers should that this should be literally the most prohibited substance to work with it, it's just mind-blowing no in fact that part is where the politics come back in and it's insane and i mean granted there's been huge strides made in the last 20 years with medical marijuana becoming legal in many more states more doctors being willing to try out you know so there is you know baby steps still compared to where we need to go for sure So if you say, you know, cancer being one of the big uh, modern killers where it's hard to go around anywhere talking to somebody whether they didn't have it or they don't know somebody who had it, what would be you personally? What's your take on it? Do you take anything preventively, like on a regular basis, whether CBD oils or THC oils, or do you feel that that's kind of a shot in the dark, so you might as well just play your chance and see if something comes up, then worry about figuring out what the right strain is. What's your personal, for yourself, I guess, more than recommend to anybody else, What what's your answer to that? Well, I think that, I mean, honestly, uh, the shift that's occurring that I think, that I believe in, I mean, that resonates with with me from studying this for um, half my life is that cannabis, a a moderate use of cannabis in your life can be part of one's approach to wellness. And this, and this stated as casually as that can trigger all kinds of alarm bells with people who are from entrenched in this, you know, other prohibition paradigm. Right. But, um, you know, a lot of people I think could do very well with, um, for example, what we'd call microdosing. Mm-hmm. Um, THC and cannabidiol have potent anti-inflammatory properties, mm-hmm. and more and more and more, the study of neurological disease like age-related dementias, or Alzheimer's, and age-related other neurological disorders like Parkinson's disease, um, or, or Huntington's, which is entirely genetically predisposed, but in these various neurological conditions um, and in systemic inflammatory conditions like rheumatoid diseases, arthritis, mm-hmm. um, chronic inflammation is the problem. Yeah. Chronic inflammation in your blood vessels, in your arterial uh, walls leads to atherosclerosis and, and 
cardiovascular disease, the number one cause of um, of death and um, lack of productivity in this country. And these are all consequences of pro-inflammatory challenges to our body. I mean, many of them lifestyle choices. I mean, they're just garbage that sure. people eat, have been conditioned to eat in this country and, yeah. and sedentary lifestyles and what have you. But low-dose cannabis on a daily basis, I think, would improve the aging process and quality of life for a great many people. What? And that's con- that's controversial. You know, trustees of my college might be like, what is he saying? But uh, no, but yeah, that's, that's you way, know that's the way I see it. Um, if I were living in a in a state where it were um, it were where I had the liberty to be an adult with one of the safest plants on the planet, mm-hmm. I would probably have a little bit every day. What by a little bit are we talking about smoking? Are we talking about oil? Are we talking about more CBD heavy, more THC heavy? What would be your let's say you live in California tomorrow? What would you do? I wish I could tell you that I've had enough experience to know with mm-hmm. so much that's been out there in in California but um you know it uh, i i i would favor having some THC around i think some people would like to just take cannabidiol mm-hmm. uh oil extracts as a, as a supplement um you know like sublingual spray or something. Yeah. And there are great products out there. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm friends with folks involved with Care by Design, mm-hmm. uh, for example, is a company that makes really great CBD-rich products. Some of which are just not going to get you high, but may be good daily anti-inflammatory sort of vitamin. People like uh, Ed Rosenthal, who has been writing about cannabis with his own name for probably longer than anybody who's who's presently alive. And you know, Ed's been saying for years it should be viewed it should be viewed as a vitamin. Um, you know, not everybody's going to want THC, but you build a tolerance to it. I mean, people who so you're thinking both routes are valid, both the just CBD spray or oil route that doesn't get you high, or sort of low THC and slowly build up. And so personally, you would go more the THC route, but you feel that there are benefits in both. Am I reading sure. it correctly? There are benefits in both, and there are so many ways now. With very, I mean, the the sophistication of um, of vaporizers and and discrete little vape pens that mm-hmm. can be used um, to deliver high THC, low THC, no THC. Um, it can be it it one. I mean, our society could evolve at least in little micro pockets where these things are going on. I mean, it is happening. Right. Um, and it it could be a it could be a supplement. Um, to to wellness um, you know I think the only to me the area where there's concern and what what gets thrown out is the bugaboo that's the the boogeyman that we're all scared of even to let cancer patients have cannabis mm-hmm. it all falls the argument as we talked about earlier I mean and, and what's going on like in the politics here in Florida it it's not like that people are standing up and saying, no, cannabis, marijuana is not medicine anymore. I mean, some people do because sure. they're just completely ignorant. Mm-hmm. But uh, but for the most part, that's not the crux of the argument. Nobody nobody educated on the subject says that there's no medicinal values. Right. They say that 
the side effects are too problematic mm -hmm. and that there's too much of a risk that it's going to get out and, and, and we would be condoning somebody's bad behavior. So the, the worry of condoning some stonehead's bad behavior is seen as a counterbalance to keep uh, a war veteran crippled by PTSD from smoking herb. Yeah, no, that's um, – in fact, that's it, where the insanity of it all comes in, but – no, you know, and, and I, I think, you know, we kill, you know, the proverbial dead horse and beat him plenty about the stupidity of yeah. policy right now and how we definitely need to change it. I guess my one last question for now about some of these would be people who are on board, people who are already saying, yes, sign me up. Clearly, it's different state to state because in some states you have options, in some states you don't. But the part, of the the where do they go part, because the reality is that not all collectives are the same, not all products are the same. There are things that are marketed as something where really they haven't been grown the proper way or they have been using, uh, you know, chemicals in the process of turning it into oil that are not, the, you know, there's so much variety even, even about that right where certain things have to be advertised as one product they really aren't you know where they really aren't who do you trust in terms right. of you know you are interested you want to experiment with some of the cbd oils or the thc oils who do you go to yeah well i mean it varies from place to place um but yeah, these are these are major i mean i I guess I, I won't answer that question so much as say that's a very important question for people to think about. I think that products, consumers, um, regardless of what the medical indication is, consumers should do their very best to demand reputable lab testing. Right. Um, which is part of what can create a ro whole robust industry around this to make the economic argument yeah. about cannabis as medicine um it, re reliable lab testing and not just to say hey uh high thc low thc but pesticides right that's a huge problem yeah i mean it's it's getting it, it gets more and more of attention but it's still understated um how many pesticides are in uh used in cannabis and and not only get maintained but with concentrates can become more concentrated yeah there's there is there was some really great investigative journalism by the Oregonian newspaper um, last summer on this, and there are other things. Busts in Washington, busts in Colorado, people using these systemic fungicides um, because they're growing uh, a big grow of cannabis and they get trounced by a fungus, and you know it's a it's a cost benefit ratio. They pump in these pesticides, and and there, I really worry about the. The health risks from that absolutely because you know you're there buying cbd oils sometimes yeah. have no way of knowing these are imported hemp paste products that yep. can, are coming from china and eastern europe and do you, if it's got a sticker on it that says this batch has was tested and clean and how do you know I mean, this is why it all needs to be above ground yeah and, and absolutely you know, a robust market and not just a not just with the minds that of heavy-handed regulation but with um but with a strong uh, transparency in in where things are going, or, or being having the liberty of uh, local, you know, home grows, if you will, or knowing really where your medicine is coming from, right from the ground. Exactly, um, and that's the other part to add to the complexity of this whole debate. No, it's totally fascinating. It's clearly, you know, for everything we bring up, which is valuable, it raises three more questions. But I think that's where the research and all the 
uh, once things become more legal and you know more of these questions can actually be answered, which would help it quite dramatically. Anything else, Greg, that you want to throw out there? Well, you know, because I am where I'm at in Florida, and I mentioned the ballot proposition and stuff and amendments that this this medical marijuana amendment too has is gotten enough signatures to be back on the ballot in Florida in November, and. Uh, whether here or other states, it, they, we really do have a lot of people who are still in the position of needing to understand that cannabis is real medicine. Mm-hmm. It's not jive. It's a real. It really is medicinal. Um, there's much to learn about how to t- tailor it to the individual, what strain or what formulation works for someone. But it is. It's just. It's been so such a remarkable journal journey for me to absorb over these years all of the therapeutic potential for um, for cannabis. And it's not going away. Uh, the tide is changing in many countries um, all over the world who are beginning to understand this. And it's, it's a legit and uh, and safe medicine and, and moving forward with policy that isn't based in um, in in fearful programming is is just really important. Um, so uh, I, the science is so grounded and it needs to move into human clinical studies. But the science of studying these endocannabinoids has just not only informed us about how cannabis works and that it's medicine, it's taught us an awful lot about how our biology works. Mm-hmm. I mean, understanding of like circuit level plasticity, how learning and memory works, how how resilience, how the brain has resilience to injury, um, how the immune system adapts and changes itself. The endocannabinoids are so involved with these things. I mean, they're not the whole story, but they're so involved that it's really – we're not just changing paradigms in sort of a legalization sense. We're changing paradigms of how the connections and the circuits in your brain work because the endocannabinoid system is so involved with that. And you know, it's not just that cannabis has been used a long time that makes it good medicine. Mm-hmm. As I, I've, I've heard in debates, I've been – Doctors have thrown this at me. Well, we use, uh, you know, we've used foxglove and digitalis as medicine too. But you know, that doesn't mean people should grow foxglove and use it because it's deadly. But it's not just that cannabis has been used a long time and has ancient evidence for use that makes it good medicine. It's not just that it grows from the ground and that God made it that makes it good medicine. Mm-hmm. But it has been it's it's been used for thousands of years. It's survived across dozens of cultural transitions and has been cherished and um, and cultivated. Its properties have been selected. We humans have evolved cannabis to mm-hmm. where it's at, and and you know the uh, kind of a, a, a deeper conversation for another time is whether cannabis has influenced human evolution. But we definitely have a mutualistic relationship and have for millennia that humans help the cannabis plant spread around the globe and the cannabis plant has helped humans be be resilient to the various injuries and chronic uh, damage of life and if we have a more holistic view about that then I you know the future of cannabis medicine 
is is very big and very um very real beautiful man well thank you so much for the lesson yeah man thank you for everything <laughs> it's a great pleasure Well, the funky music means one thing. That's the end of another fine episode of the Trunky Palace Podcast. Um, I'm going to quickly thank our affiliate sponsors, Audible.com. Get yourself a book to listen to on your long ride on the train or in the car. As if it's possible for you ever to be tired of podcasts. But uh, this is a, a great way to get your read on while you're riding. Um, Curacao chocolates. Amazing, healthy chocolate treats. And if you're going to order something from Amazon, please click through our Amazon portal on our donation page at the Drunken Taoist. It enables us to get a tiny little piece of everything that is bought. It costs you nothing extra. It's just Amazon trying to give back to things you like. And it's quite an amazing thing, and it helps us out in big time. Um, Daisy House Music, of course, for their fine theme song. really is the signature sound of the Drunken Taoist, and we appreciate it, guys. Uh, another great album from them is out and available at Bandcamp.com. Check it out, DaisyHouseBandcamp.com. It's called Western Man. So I have a proper botchering for you guys from Bolelli next week, from those of you who've donated over the past two or three weeks. We'll add that to our list for next time. And uh, that's about it. This has been a long episode, and uh, the summer's over, so we'll be reunited from his amazing trip to Italy and then from the uh, mountains of California. I'm sure we'll have great stories about that, and we'll have all sorts of things to chat about. So see you guys next time, and uh, thanks for listening as always. And so ends another awesome episode of the Drunken Taoist Podcast. Be sure to keep your ears peeled for another mind-expanding episode coming soon. We'll be tweeting you as soon as they come out. You can keep track of Daniel at dbolelli. That's D-B-O-L-E-L-L-I. And you can find me on Twitter at richimon1. That's R-I-C-H-I-M-O-N, the numeral one. See y'all soon. Maybe I don't want to hear this. No, you don't. <laughs> in questo caso, in questo caso, le providenza di Dio. Duncan showed you the way, huh? Oh man, isn't that scary to think? Nice. So don't kill people, do that instead. I have nothing against chicken other than the fact that they are ugly and weird and strange. <laughs> this was great, it's fucking awesome. And I love this conversation. We've been yeah, having a great hour nice. here. Dun, dun, dun. I completely got lost. Are we doing the outro or the intro? We're outro. Oh, we're out. Okay, sorry. So that's so. Let's continue. Did you ever see the movie Tombstone with uh, Val Kilmer and uh, uh, your accent? It just whatever that movie is you were trying to tell. Can me you about translate it? for me, please? I believe the word was tombstone. Yeah, that one exactly. <laughs> just as I was saying, you know, Tombstone. <laughs> what do I have to do? One day the rod shall teach you. Get back to work!